what you've been saying, James. Perhaps a creator-less world, evolving on the basis of its own changing rules, or a world emerging from multiple creators would be preferable to a world that's the consequence of the intentions of only a single existing creator. With no creator, or having multiple creators, none of whom has total control over the process of what gets created, there would always be present multiple options for evolution, rather than a single road that always leads to extinction or absorption. Some singular existing creator may hold out the promise of future beneficence, or familiar with the biblical case, Yahweh's covenant with Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. But this covenant was based on the model of Hittite, suzerain, vassal treaties, where beneficence was awarded on the basis of past benefits already received. So the Israelites' ability to refuse the covenant was already limited. Of course, this was a God who turned out, in actual relations with humans, to often be irrational, violent in nature, excessively brutal in his judgment and punishment. Well, perhaps that concept of God is the appropriate concept for physical existence that itself is ultimately purposeless, brutal, and ends in senseless, cold dissolution. Despite the created world being the intentions of a god of history who is imminent in the world. That's odd, because philosophers like Carl Jaspers have characterized this model of multiplicity as the historical period in which the divine realm was an imminent presence in human activity, where transhuman gods and godlets, ancestors, Souls indwelling in plants and animals were immediate in human culture, where they essentially created human culture because these entities absolutely determined human fate, life and death. This picture has humans as little more than puppets in the hands of a multitude of superior powers. Well, couldn't one make the same claim about an omnipotent singular creator? who puts everything in the universe in motion in one fell swoop? A creator who needn't be manipulating his puppet people every moment of every day. This has already been done from the start. The intentions, possibilities, and limitations of the creator's divine laws that govern the universe take care of things quite well. Well, let's look at the second area of multiplicity, which concerns the structure and distribution of power in the umwelt generated by this model. Power within the pantheon of transhuman beings, however coherently or loosely constructed it may be. One of the first things we see is that pantheons are not static. They evolve over time often along with changes in fortune of the empire or culture in which they are embedded. Sometimes power is based on the kind of structure pantheons display. There are several types of structure that characterize pantheons, hierarchical, generational, functional, others, but they are all malleable and they often coexist. Pantheons are not random accumulations of deities, 
but the basis of power in their order may change. For example, during a period of unification as a result of political arrangements among city-states as in Mesopotamia. A hierarchical structure may emerge from certain cities or regions becoming dominant, or through generational transitions from marriage and procreation among the gods, or as the consequence of conflict and battles in which one group of deities wrests power from another. Under the conceptual model of multiplicity, one could say there is no permanent single source of power. Power can change, perhaps as over its entire history, the physical laws governing the universe can change. For the structural type of pantheon or collective that is hierarchical, a single god, or the god and his or her consort, ascends in power and surpasses the capabilities of other divine beings. Or one god may absorb the cultural functions of other gods, extending its power from control over agriculture to other elements of the economy, for example, perhaps even to directing military engagements. So we will also want to be asking what is the cultural function of divine beings. We consider the acceptable behavior and supporting social structures that exist within a culture of multiplicity and ask, are there functional counterparts in the transhuman world? What functions are replicated in the divine world under the powers of a particular deity? We've seen this in the quasi-collaborative relationship between earthly kings and their patron deities in Canaanite religion but there are many functions within a society, lords or managers of agricultural domains, accountants and tradesmen, craftsmen and builders, priests or the maintainers of cultic rituals, shamans and healers, military leaders and warriors, organizers of tribal migrations and so forth. Each can have its representative place in the pantheon. So we can see that power in the pantheon is generally distributed power, sometimes hierarchically, sometimes among different generations of gods in power, but also where those cultural functions and the powers that they represent coalesce within a pantheon's current leader or a god of high rank. And such is the case with Marduk in the Mesopotamian Enuma Elish. Other deities represent functional aspects of Marduk's control. The Enuma Elish hymn to Marduk lists 50 names of other deities that perform functions of Marduk's control. This extends to control of the rains and weather, work in the field, attack in battle, even accounting. Now, in this arrangement, it appears as if power radiates from a single leader. But that idea has inclined some scholars to think pantheons always embody implicit monotheisms. Well, to me, that seems forced. It seems just a way to support the questionable notion that one true god of monotheism is the natural successor to polytheism's concatenation of pseudo-gods 
after those gods had been determined to be unworthy or fake gods. Another way power gets distributed within a pantheon is through its differentiation by personality. We've perhaps felt the different personalities of the youthful, robust, rather goal-directed Baal, the elderly, more experienced, uh, possibly more reflective El, the tempestuous Anat. Even bimorphic gods, part animal, part human, or hybrid gods, part animal A, part animal B, have personalities. They may be human-like in some respects, but not in others. But personalities are not necessarily stable. Their essential characteristics are colored by the functional roles they, the gods play. Reshef, pestilence, is a Canaanite evil deity associated with plague, disease, and war. Sometimes it is called upon to divine omens about the future from looking at the internal organs or the omenta of malformed animal fetuses. Some scholars regard Reshef as the underworld deity who controls its gates. We will shortly see various Egyptian deities that are quite clearly differentiated by personalities, names, and forms associated with different regions and local social and cultural functions within them. The chief of a pantheon might hold greater power for certain periods of time, depending on ongoing interactions among the gods. This power might appear to be a superior kind of power other gods cannot overcome. Such power was implied in the Iliad, where Jupiter controlled the sky and thunder and was king of the gods throughout the Republic and the imperial eras. Jupiter's sacred animal was the eagle who held inherent precedence over other birds. Yet still there was no single source of power. The point is that pantheonic power could always change, which meant the laws or divine commands governing the universe could change and did change in human experience as certain regularities of seasonal climate were perceived to be a periodically interrupted or reversed as they were in ancient Canaan along the Levant. The Coret story discussed in episode 10 illustrates internal tensions within the pantheon when different divine powers spontaneously work against one another. Interactions between Anat and El in the Canaanite narratives especially suggest a world that is not necessarily a stable place. It is a world where conditions are altered by the interactions of one god with another, and possibly also by improper interactions of humans with a god holding power. Which brings us to a third aspect of multiplicity, interactions between the human and divine world and the extent to which the outcomes may be collaborative, or forced. Those who see the world as fundamentally populated by entities that control nature, that have intentions unlike humans, that may interact with humans and possibly control destinies, is to see a world we cannot see. 
This means interpretations of phenomena like cultic rituals and the use of sacrificial victims, especially by cultures no longer extant, are particularly difficult to make with confidence. Die Keil Alphabetisch Text aus Ugarit is the standard collection of translated cuneiform tablets from Ugarit. It's abbreviated KTU. KTU 1.43 describes a series of sacrificial and votive gifts in palace rituals that accompany cultic processions within the grounds of the palace. It relates that when goddess Athart of the window enters the pit or mound used in royal funerals in the royal palace, a libation is to be poured into the pit of the palace chapel. Offerings include a robe and a tunic, three shekels, a ram, an ox, and three sheep given seven times to the gods and seven times to Kothar, remember the builder? Two other gods then enter the chapel, receiving a gold and silver shekel. Then a muzzle and a lung is given to Anat. The text ends with the king walking behind the gods on foot seven times. This circumambulating the palace is possibly a symbol of the king's controlling his domain. But beyond scholarly differences in translating and interpreting the text, how much of what was performed within the temple or within the kingly palace was accessible to the general population cannot be determined. If we suppose death was perhaps the only common denominator, shared ritual understandings may have been limited to rites associated with funerals. Unanswered questions also relate to the economic impact of various objects used in offerings and sacrifices. For example, did the animals used play any role in the general consumption of food? Did collection of gold and silver shekels mean royal temples functioned as a kind of bank? Other texts describe ritual processions of deities under leadership of the king himself, who engages in purification washings and performs priestly tasks of libations and offerings. Some suggest pit libations could represent a king's possible communication with dead kings. Such ritual communications as that would enable a king to maintain continuity with illustrious kings from the past, or perhaps be the occasion to supersede them based on current political conditions. Unlike ordinary citizens, the king was able to participate in both the transhuman divine world and the purely human world. But whether this is enough to say the king was himself both human and divine well, that might be misappropriating categories of later Western theology. While rituals associated with kingship and control of a city may be forced in the sense of being obligatory, some are prompted by occasions for which neither human nor God is cause. 
KTU 1.100 presents a right to cure snakebite. It is embedded in the myth of a mare whose foal has been bitten. Mari, possibly a mare goddess, appeals to 11 deities through Shabash, the protector of horses, to carry her voice to El and others, others including Kothar on Hases, remember the builder? He's in Crete for a spell against the venom of a snake, one that has shed its skin, and to cast out the poison. In the end, only Horon, god of the underworld, holds the power to uproot the tamarisk tree, tree of death, and make the poison flow away. But the story concludes with an odd exchange in which the now impotent snake is given by Horon, to Mare as a dowry. Here the interaction is two-way and, if presumably successful, collaborative. That, however, doesn't explain why unsuccessful appeals to eleven deities are part of the formula, or on what basis the snake is transformed from being dangerous into a gift. Moving from rituals exclusively for a king to one of interest to those other than kings, KTU 1.40, and there are partial duplicates in KTU 1.84, describes a liturgy that specifically includes the general population as its subject. It is a liturgy for a rite of atonement for the people of Ugarit. Sections are addressed separately to men and women, and they involve offerings of ox, ram, and donkey. The offerings provide purification and atonement for sins coming from accusations made by foreign peoples, Katians, Hurrians, Hittites, Cypriots, whose sins are actually included, that is, those of the Ugarits or also of the foreigners, is open to some debate. But the nature of the sins is more clear. It involves the oppression of people who are poor, possibly rural immigrant field workers, the recipients of anger, impatience, or other evils of unjust treatment or oppression. The immolation of a donkey in this sacrificial rite may indicate the special concern of this National Day of Atonement. So this third area, interactions between humans and transhuman entities, especially in rituals and sacrifices, must remain largely opaque in terms of our gaining an equivalent experience of the full meaning and consequence of engaging in such ritual sacrificial acts. Did the people of Ugarit actually expect ritual incantations and formulae to be materially effective? Or, just like many contemporary people, did they utter such magical expressions as a matter of course, without thinking them through, only in the hopes they might work? Well, that may depend on how people understood the dispersion of power among the multiplicity of beings, as well as their competition for power among the divine beings in the pantheon. Indeed, 
There appears to be no term for pantheon used by the Canaanites of Ugarit. They simply refer to the gods. Now, we've already suggested that as different members of a pantheon compete for supremacy, this makes power malleable. So the diffusion of power seems to give individual beings access to different kinds of power, whether they are divine beings or human kings or mythic heroes still active in present history or the ancestors of individual families. Power, then, is a changing attribute. It is not clearly exclusively inherent in any one entity. Within a pantheon, conflicting commands from divine beings inconsistently demanding things of differing values may result in spiritual ambiguity or confusion for the adherent. Which divine edict is the correct one? To which deity should one give allegiance? What is holding power for a divine being whose epithet is the courageous one, for example, but whose mythic behavior belies that attribute if they behave weak when the chips are down? Or a god who enacts overly cruel retribution? Does the believer play one god against the other or bargain one deity against another? The dynamics of a pantheon may be material affected by the entry of recently deceased family members or ancestors into the collective as quasi-divine beings. Ugarit houses included a room set aside for the burial of deceased members. This suggests that family ancestors had a continued presence in close proximity to their descendants. Were family squabbles or the dysfunctions of living reality then carried over into mythic, spiritual reality? Dysfunction among the gods comes from somewhere. Through the entry of personal ancestors into the pantheon, the believer is no longer simply a passive observer of various interactions among the gods. The believer may now have a vested interest but the believer may also wind up spiritually fragmented rather than guided along a clear spiritual or moral path, and that partly as a consequence of the moral or immoral acts of their own deceased ancestor. These are the kinds of things we will be coming back to again and again with each conceptual model, and it includes our fourth area, the form and identity of the gods and other transhuman beings. Now, it is worth thinking about the material context in which divine beings received their names and identities. The port city of Ugarit, for example, was connected to a broad trading network. It dealt in various precious stones. This suggests its reach may have extended as far west as the Baltic region of Europe. Its cargo vessels reached Cyprus, then called Alashia, Crete, and the Peloponnesus, that corroborated by Cypriot and Mycenaean pottery that has been found in Ugarit, and the coast of Egypt. Names and epithets of gods naturally reflect interactions with those other cultures. Descriptions changed as populations migrated. In the case of Ugarit, 
to and from Egypt and Mesopotamia, or as the political fate of city-state empires underwent upheaval or conquest. Names of gods also frequently grew in number. There were as many as 20 for Baal. This can be seen among certain tablets found in Ugarit containing lists of deities, KTU 1.47. KTU 1.118, sometimes reiterated in ritual texts like KTU 1.148. What was the purpose of these lists? Did they represent an attempt to promote a favorite cult or a particular explicit theology? Underlying such uncertainties were somewhat more basic attributes Deities might be associated with their place of origin or residence. Both El and Baal were specifically associated with Mount Zaphon. Or gods could be connected to generic geographic features, the earth and the heavens, mountains and valleys, rivers or the sea, sometimes in bizarre ways. Moat, the embodiment of death, is described through an underworld pictured as a kind of mouth-like vortex whose lip extends from earth to the heavens, whose tongue even reaches the stars, KTU 1.5. Lesser deities may be the offspring of primary gods. They may be their attendants. Some deities might be highly regarded kings. KTU 1.161 is a tablet of a royal funeral liturgy for a king Nikmod, the third or fourth, according to different scholars. He was the second to last king of Ugarit, father of the last Bronze Age ruler and king, Amnirapi, who ruled from 1215 to 1180 BCE, before Ugarit's destruction by the Sea Peoples, according to Pharaoh Ramses III, around 1185. Excavations have held that Ugarit had been destroyed by the eighth year of Ramses III, 1178 BCE. More recent radiocarbon dating puts destruction between 1192 and 1190 BCE. The funeral liturgy is addressed by a priest to various deities and appears to emphasize dynastic legitimacy by association with past kings, reiterating their continued importance after death. In depictions of the form and identity of a deity, while there is a diverse range of personalities across a pantheon, each individual member tends to have a relatively narrow personality band. That is, the personal character of a deity is framed largely by their social function or their place in the pantheon. At the same time, there is a lifespan, so to speak, of each deity's identity. We've begun to see from the Ugarit myths that there is implied considerable development of personality. The younger god is depicted as seeking ascendancy of power as in one of the visual representations of deities from Ugarit, the white limestone bas-relief stele Baal-Ofudra, Baal depicted with lightning or thunderbolt, now in the Louvre. This shows a young Baal wielding a club or axe in his raised right hand, 
a spearheaded thunderbolt in his stretched-out left hand, striding over wavy lines representing C. Remember Baal's defeat of Prince C. The shaft of the spearhead perhaps symbolizes a plant, like grain, nourished by the storm god. But this also militant bearded bow wears a helmet embellished with bull's horns and a belted kilt bearing a curved dagger. The stele additionally depicts a much smaller king receiving divine protection from the god. By contrast, as time marches on, we see depicted an older god, El, for example, perhaps more mellow, but also more indecisive and prone to forgetfulness and excesses of drinking. Jimmy, when you speak of personality band of transhuman beings, you must make sure you're using personality in the most general way possible, and not necessarily referring to the character of human persons. Because with gods and other beings who were part animal, part human, their personalities diverge more and more for anything human-like. Quite right, Penta. I think some of the humanness comes in simply in order to express that these beings have intentions and feelings in their actions in relation to one another. So animal deities might take on familial roles as fathers or mothers, or political roles as warriors or controllers of some domain. And you might say they are anthropomorphized somewhat, but not substitute humans. Animal figures and images, in fact, are among the earliest representation of transhuman beings. They were typically dogs, jackals, gazelles, cattle, rams. These were animals that were valued. And one can see that from animal burial practices revealing particular care that was attached to the beings buried. How people thought such treatment pertained to other matters, their continued post-mortem existence, for example, must remain speculative because these animals were also used, used for food and for products from their body parts. Perhaps the inherent tension in that relationship was part of what humans were trying to figure out. Did people have a well-articulated theology of an afterlife? Were their sets of beliefs regarded as true? Or were they simply hopes? Were rituals attached to burial practices really to please the living? Well, we'll ask these questions again when we look more into Egyptian burial practices. Pentha, you mentioned the mythological merging of human and animal forms. I believe these to be among the earliest of religious expressions. This ability of individual animals or humans to metamorphose by shape-shifting into bimorphic beings may have been depicted as early as in cave Paleolithic drawings like the sorcerer pictograph found at Les Trois Frères in Ariège in the French Pyrenees made around 13,000 BCE. This image depicts a human dressed as a stag, or perhaps a bimorphic half-human, half-stag spirit, quite unusual for Upper Paleolithic cave paintings, which are mostly of animals. 
Well, did this image reflect the practice of ritual ceremonies in the chamber conducted by a shaman to ensure a successful hunt? Or did this notion reflect how humans re-represented the image? One can distinguish the perception of transhuman animal or bimorphic beings from therianthropic beliefs that humans are themselves part non-human animal and from questions of whether such beliefs are spiritual or perhaps represent mental illness. This idea appears in early, say, at least 16th century European folklore. It appears in Native and Mesoamerican folk religion involving Nahuals, humans who turn themselves into animal forms. It appears in Japanese history and in ancient Greeks who spoke of mythological beings able to alternate between canine and human forms. In the Solomon Islands, the term atai for soul in Mota language is related to ata for reflected image in Maori. Terms related to the spirit, such as figona and vigona, convey a being for the Solomons that has not yet been in human form. An animal who is corporeal understands human speech and shares the same soul as its master. And it may be depicted in the form of an eel, a shark, a lizard. Part of the appeal or motivation to perceive shape-shifting human and animal forms may come from a desire to conjoin the freedom of the wild and savage beasts of nature with the questioning intellect of the human mind or the lusts of human sexual desire. Think of the human equine centaurs of Thessaly and Arcadia who pull the chariot of Dionysius and who are ridden by Eros. Of course, quite fully human deities do very well at the extremes of behavioral identity themselves. We all are familiar with Kronos, leader of the Titans, who scythed off his father Uranus's genitals, threw them into the sea where they bubbled up to spawn the goddess Aphrodite. Kronos then married his own sister Rhea and ate their children as they were born. The Hindu and Buddhist goddess of self-sacrifice, Chinamasta, cut off her own head, paraded around with it, blood spurting from her open neck, which two of her attendants drank. Found in the Sakta Pramoda, as well as the Buddhist Chinamunda Vajravarahi Sadhana, one legend of her decapitation accounts for her act as a consequence of her drinking a purported immortality elixir prepared by demons from the ocean waves. Perhaps most simultaneously, both all too human and non-human is the Haitian voodoo deity of the dead, Baron Samedi. Baron Samedi, Baron Saturday, is a reanimated skeleton. He wears a purple and black tuxedo, a top hat, and sunglasses, and cotton nasal plugs as is done on human corpses prepared for burial. The Baron greets the dead and leads them to the underworld, making sure they rot in the ground and don't return as zombies. But the mischievous Baron also loves drinking rum, smoking cigars, chasing women, and swearing profusely. 
Such an account of the Baron was told to me on my trip to Haiti shortly after the great earthquake in 2010 as part of a medical mission and finding replacement residents for orphans. On that delightful note, James, perhaps we should pause once again before proceeding to look at the multiplicity model's understanding of the cultural impact of its various deities and transhuman beings. That indeed sounds like a good idea. A pause. We all need to pause. Pause for pause, perhaps, given the presence of so many animal beings among us.